chapter 17 from verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kerith Ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have instructed the ravens to supply you with food there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kerith Ravine, east of the Jordan, and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It might also just be a little bit useful to read the few verses before that reading, uh, just to help set the context of why Elijah is coming to meet this King Ahab and challenging the king of Israel. I'll just read 1 Kings 16 as well from verse 29. It says, In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria, Samaria over Israel for 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nabat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ephbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he had built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. In Ahab's time, Hiel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, Abiram, and he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. Okay, so you see something of the context to which the time of Elijah's life and ministry began, a very difficult and dark time. So we're going to be thinking about Elijah, and we're going to see in his life, sometimes when you read these Old Testament stories of a prophet like Elijah, almost some of it just sounds fantastical. Some of the things Elijah does, there's going to be miracles, there's going to be adventure, There's going to be heroes and villains. There's going to be battles and fights. There's going to be all sorts of things that make us think, oh my goodness, this is not a normal life. This doesn't look anything like my day-to-day life. And we're going to see it even at the end of Elijah's life, the most amazing ending. I won't spoil the ending if you don't know it yet. You can go home and read how Elijah's life ends, but it's truly awesome. And we're going to think, man, I'm not sure the end of my life is going to look quite like that. Or maybe it will. But I think the reason that I want to look at this is to start to open our eyes a little bit to what a life lived for God can look like. Maybe not in every similarity to Elijah's. But I think it's one of the myths of our age, isn't it? That a lot of our young people grow up in this world thinking that anyone can become famous. Do you know what I mean? That if I have the right uh, Instagram account, someone might take notice and I'll become an influencer. 
Or someone might think, if I just get onto the right reality TV show, I might become a, a famous singer one day or get spotted by an agency. Or if I just look the right way and get my body to look the right way, then I will have a successful life and be loved and make money and be popular. There's a lot of that idea, and actually, we feed that to our children through education and things. Is if you if you really work hard at enough, and if you you're special, and if you can just find the thing that makes you so special, you could be this world conquering person. And of course, when the reality kicks in and our lives turn out to be fairly ordinary, uh, we become disillusioned. We're told and fed that idea that we can have these extraordinary successful lives in whatever area we want to. However, I want to make the suggestion this morning that no matter how ordinary you feel today, you can have a life filled with meaning and purpose, a life filled with things that are great and glorious for God no matter who you are. It may not get the press headlines. It may not make you millions. You might not have books written about you. But you can do glorious things for God, whether they are seen or unseen, that count for heaven and count for eternity. Most of the people... In the Bible, when you actually look at their lives and who they are, they are not special people. Nor are they particularly talented people. Because we might think, in order to be an Elijah, in order to be a Moses, in order to be a John the Baptist, you've got to be very, very gifted and talented. Maybe one out of a million. Like God sees, oh, that person's one in a million. I can use them to do something great for my kingdom. That's just not the case, is it? Do you remember Moses? He was really worried about going up against Pharaoh because he had a, a stammer, a speech impediment. He couldn't speak properly. So he'd think, I can't do that. Elijah here, he's actually from an area, it says here, called Gilead. Now, Gilead's this kind of shepherding mountainous region uh, in the north of Israel with no particular wealth. It's a very rural area. And um, he's come from a very humble background with no nobility or money um, and has no particular reason to be called to be a prophet. It doesn't say anything about his qualifications. In fact, do you remember John the Baptist? When John the Baptist came, do you remember what he was wearing? Like camel's hair and looked a bit rugged. His hair was unkept. And, uh, and when he came along, Elijah said, oh, look, here's one that's come just like Elijah. So Elijah was just this kind of like man from the backwaters. No one in particular. Jesus himself was a carpenter. His disciples, fishermen. You don't have to be exceptional. You don't have to be one in a million in order to be famous in God's kingdom. I just want us to turn quickly to James chapter 5 in the New Testament. uh, Because James speaks about... um, Elijah. And again, we might, when we read the story of Elijah and we see the kind of miracles he's doing, the kind of incredible acts of faith he does, we might think, oh, I could never be an Elijah. He's got to be some kind of superhero believer. Actually, when you look at James chapter 5, when James writes about him, what does he write? 
I'm just going to read halfway uh, from verse 16. James chapter 5, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Okay, now look at this. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective, says James. Then he mentions Elijah, verse 17. Elijah was a human being even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed and the heavens gave rain and the earth produced its crops. But did you see that in verse 17? Elijah was a human being even as we are. So we can't go, oh, Elijah, he was a special category, way more holy than me, way more talented, way more brave, way more courageous, born with incredible aptitudes for discerning God's will and understanding the times. He was a human being even as we are, even as you are. I don't know if you find that encouraging or disturbing. (laughs) It's encouraging in the sense that God can use any one of us, but it's disturbing in the sense that God can use any one of us. We have no excuse. (laughs) I want to get out of doing great things for God. I'm just going to live an ordinary life. I want, to be honest, I want an ordinary life. I don't really want all the, the rest of it. I want to just have a peaceful, quiet life where I can just get on with business, if you like. I'm not sure I want a life like Elijah's, but I could, because God says any one of us could, if we live a life for God. Okay, so Elijah's life wasn't particularly exceptional in himself, but he was exceptional because he had faith. James says that the prayers of a righteous person are powerful and effective. Now that doesn't mean Elijah's prayers were powerful and effective because he was super duper holy. That's not what it means. He was like us. Are you super duper holy? I'm not super duper holy, I don't think. Elijah's prayers weren't effective because he was super duper holy. He was righteous which simply means he was right with God. He was right with God. How does a sinner become right with God? Through Christ. Through the cross. Through forgiveness. Through grace. Through love. Through reconciliation through repentance, from turning away from a life of meaningless and sin, just turning to Christ and saying, I'm yours, and you become right with God. You don't have to become perfect. You don't have to become holy. You don't have to make all your New Year's resolutions and stick to them, and then suddenly your prayers are answered. No, our prayers are not answered because we've turned over a new leaf. Our prayers are answered because we turn to Christ. And his prayers are powerful and effective, not because he is powerful and effective, Elijah, but because God is powerful and effective. It's who you know, not the muscles and strength that you have. 
It wasn't Elijah that stopped the rain from raining. It wasn't Elijah that caused the rivers to dry up in a drought. It was God, wasn't it? But because Elijah was right with God, he heard his prayers. And being right with God is just a simple matter of saying, I'm yours. I'm surrendering. My life is yours. Now, we might think that sounds easy, but it's not. To say to God, my life is yours, very few people truly do that in a fullness, in a full way. Many of us like to do it a little bit. My life is yours, Lord, when it's convenient. My life is yours, Lord, from 9 a.m. to midday, but not 1.30 because I've got lunch on a Sunday. My life is yours, Lord, when I'm not too busy on the weekends. My life is yours, Lord, if it looks pretty much like what I want anyway. How many of you would say my life is yours, Lord, if it meant not looking anything like what you think you want it to be? Would you still say it? Elijah had to say it. I reckon he was a very peaceful shepherd in Gilead. Probably had a nice village, nice family life. All the big events of the world are happening off in Rome and Jerusalem and all those places. He could have minded his own business. But when he started to see what was happening in Israel, when he started to see that the people were turning away from worshipping God to worshipping a God called Baal, when he saw that the king, King Ahab, was doing all kinds of evil under the influence um, of his own heart, but also the influence of his wife Jezebel, when he saw all the things that were happening, that worship of God was being destroyed, and that all the prophets of the land were turning to Baal worship as well, he could have said, all right, I'll just stay where I'm at and stay worshipping the Lord, but he didn't. He came down from the mountains, came down from his life, And he went to the center of Samaria where the king was and he confronted the king and told him this is not right. That's a life given over to the Lord. That's probably not what he wanted to do. And he knew it could go badly, presumably. He knew perhaps when he left Gilead, he may never return. He might be put in prison by King Ahab. He might have been killed by Ahab. He might have to go on the run. And in fact, that's exactly what happens. He has to go into hiding because of his choice. See, many of us want to be prayer, people of prayer uh, where our prayers are powerful and effective. Wouldn't we love that? Our, power, our prayers to be powerful and effective. And we we pray, Lord, you know, we pray for big things and small things. We want our prayers to be powerful and effective. But yet we don't want to do the thing where we have to leave the comfort of our lives to do the thing God is actually asking us to do. And then we go back to God and we say, why aren't you answering my prayers? He might say, because you're not giving your life to me. Then they would be really powerful and effective. I'm not saying that God doesn't hear our prayers, our cries for help. Of course he does. And he's quick to help. He he really is. 
But sometimes as Christians, we want that super life for God. And yet we keep much of our hearts away from him, back from him. What makes the difference in Elijah's life? He makes the Lord the center of it. Not his own life, his own world, but he puts Christ, he puts the Lord at the center. Look at verse 1. Now Elisha the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, just, just pausing there for a moment, just to recognize that incredible act of bravery confronting the king. He says this though, he says, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except to my word. Whom I serve, the Lord God of Israel. He doesn't serve the gods that Ahab is now worshipping. He also acknowledges that it's only the God of Israel who lives. He's going to worship the true and living God, not the false idols of of the world. Now, we don't have um, a temple to Baal or Asherah poles up and around. But when we look out at the world, we are tempted to serve many things, are we not? (laughs) There are many um, gods that offer us all sorts of things in life that we will serve if they give us the return. But we Christians need to come back to what Elijah's doing here and say, no, no, there's only one God who lives. There's only one God who can actually give life, true life. All the others, all the other gods, whatever it is we're serving in our life, and they're not necessarily bad things. You know, I don't know, our careers and our families and Money and all sorts of things can be used for the good of our lives. I'm not saying that. But you need to acknowledge that they can only give you a limited amount of life. They are not alive. They are not living. They can help. But there's only one God who lives who can give us eternal life. Now Baal and Asherah, the ones that Ahab are worshipping, they're completely false gods who want nothing but harm for the people and to destroy the nation of Israel. They're not good at all. In fact, Baal, if you want to get a clue, um, he gives gives himself away, Baal, actually, later on in the next few chapters, because we're reminded that his name is actually Beelzebub. Have you heard that before? Beelzebub is another term for the devil. So he kind of gives his hand away a little bit, Beelzebub. And actually, if you notice, he requires all kinds of horrible things in his worship of him. He gives small promises, but at high costs. But not the living God whom Elijah serves. Now remember, Elijah's so brave here because all of Israel has almost given up. Elijah thinks he's actually now the only one who serves the Lord. He actually says that later. Am I the only one? So he's in a context where there's no, it's not like church here where I've got, we've got lots of good fellowship around us. He's almost like the only one. Although the Lord does say, no, don't worry, there are 7,000 others in the life of Israel that have not bowed the knee to Baal. But the rest have. So the odds are stacked against Elijah and he still speaks. That's really hard. Have you ever been in that situation? Maybe you, 
in a workplace where you're the only believer. Maybe in a family, you might be the only believer. Or we are, even as a church, facing a time, as the census will tell us, that we're living in a time of unbelief, even as a country. There are more unbelievers than there are Christians. Elijah still speaks. But we see in this passage, God do something incredible. We see that even though Elijah speaks, even though the odds are stacked against him, in the end, it is God who stands by Elijah's side. So you might think that Ahab has, it turns out he has like 900 prophets of Baal and Asherah on his side. And there's only Elijah on his side. So you might look like the odds are stacked against him, one against 900. But actually, as we've revealed later in the scriptures, it says those who are for Elijah and Elisha later are greater than those against him. Because he's got God on his side. Does it matter to you that if you have Jesus on your side, nothing else really matters? Have you experienced that before? I confess that in my flesh, I have that temptation to want to have lots of people on my side. I want lots of people to agree with me to make me feel better. I want to have the affirmation of others. I don't like it when people disagree with me or conflict or those sorts of things. I don't want to be not liked. So we tend to want to have more people on our side before we feel confident before making decisions in life maybe or or acting but there may come a time in your life where it's only Jesus that will be on your side only Jesus will you still act then will that be enough I hope and pray it is for me when those times come I just want to make one more point here Elijah went to confront Ahab without knowing that it would be okay afterwards. God doesn't tell him the plan in advance. He doesn't say to Elijah, go and confront Ahab, but don't worry because I've made provision for you to escape. And it's going to look like this. It's going to have a crazy thing. Birds are going to come and feed you in this lovely ravine in the wilderness where you're going to have a really nice time. (laughs) He doesn't tell him that. He tells Elijah, just go and do it. Step out and witness to me. And then I'll look after. He, doesn't, he finds out later what will happen. Now, many of us, again, I come back to that point, we're scared to give our lives to God fully because we don't know what it will mean for tomorrow. And if, you're, again, you're anything like me, you like to prepare for tomorrow and you like to think, okay, I want to know what's going to happen. I need to know my exit strategy. I need to know that I've got plenty in reserves to to deal with the situation should things go wrong or when I make this decision or that decision, I I try and plan out 15 other decisions beyond it. Funny enough, the kingdom of God doesn't work like that, actually. Jesus himself did not live like that. He said a day at a time, whatever God brings in front of you, Give it to him. Live for him in that moment and he will deal with tomorrow. Jesus did that all the way up to the cross and beyond. And Elijah does it. 
Elijah does it. But here's the thing, is that you can trust God with that. If you do that, God will be there for you. It may not turn out to be what you thought it would be, but he will be there for you. Elijah might have thought, and then I'll go home, or and then I might die. I bet you a million pounds, sorry, I shouldn't bet, that's gambling. Sorry, that just slipped out. I reckon that Elijah never even conceived that the plan would be for him to go off into the desert in the Kerith ravine and be fed morning and evening by ravens. But I bet, no, no, I don't bet again. (laughs) When he did have that experience and he was being fed by ravens, he wouldn't have wished that away for the world. He would have thought that's way better than anything I came up with, my pension pot and my, you know, retirement plan. Fed by ravens every day, morning and evening. Two square meals a day. And the ravens probably had a tablecloth that they fluttered down on a table and pulled up a chair and maybe a rabbit came along and helped out, did the dishes afterwards. I don't know. I would would love that. I would love that. And with the Lord, because it says the word of the Lord came to him. Verse 2, the word of the Lord came to him. If you've been following any of... Bible Live or any of my teaching here at St. Michael's for many years, you'll know that the word of the Lord is another term for Christ, the word of God. The word of the Lord came to Elijah. Do you want to have an epiphany? Do you want to be like the three wise men who encounter Christ? Do you want fellowship with him? Then it may have to be in the Kerith Ravine. It may have to be in the times after you've stood for him and witnessed to him and confessed him and believed in him and surrendered to him. Then he comes to you in full presence of shining face and he says, of course you are mine for you have given yourself to me. That's what I would like. The Kerith Ravine, fed by the ravens and in the fellowship of Christ. So don't weigh up the cost first. Don't be a schemer and a planner like I often do. Don't overthink it. Don't weigh up the cost. Follow Christ and you will experience the full provision of our Heavenly Father. Die to yourself and live to Christ. Fall in love with him. When you experience his goodness, and you see his glory and his love and his mercy, you will fall in love with him. And as any of you will know, when you've, if you've ever had the experience of falling in love with someone in your life, you do silly and stupid things, don't you? You don't weigh up the costs. You just do it. Your whole life begins to change around that person. So it is so much more with Christ. His love fills your heart to overflowing And he captures your vision like the sun on a clear day. And therefore your life just begins to change and revolve around him like the earth revolves around the sun. And you do stupid things for him. But you find glory and you find life. Even if it comes at a great cost of your own life. What's it going to be?
well, as we continue to see the life of Elijah. A human being, even as we are, we might be tempted to go, I'm glad there's Elijahs out there, but not me. But maybe together we'll start to pray this bold prayer over the next few weeks. Not just Elijah, Lord. Maybe me also. Let's pray.